From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must undergo great suffering and be killed, and then on the third day be raised. To which Peter then took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid that, Lord, this must never happen to you. This is the gospel of our Lord from Matthew chapter 16. Right here, 11 chapters after Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, his remarkable sermon in which he outlines in no uncertain terms what it means to follow him. Here now, 11 chapters later, we see his closest disciple demonstrating that he has no faith in the actual way of Jesus. It's an absolutely harrowing thought, one we will return to momentarily. But for now, though, I want to tell you a story. A few years ago, when we were still living in Kentucky and Ada was about four years old, I was asked to go golfing with some friends. Now, I had not played much golf in the years after her birth, so Ada had not known me to leave on a weekend to go and do something like this. And thus, Daddy's golf game took on particular interest for her. So much so that when I returned, having put up a real whopper number on the scorecard, Ada came to me at the door and eagerly said, Daddy, did you win? And I responded to her that no, I had not won, which to my surprise both shocked and saddened her. And so I said, it's okay, sweetheart. Daddy's not a very good golfer. But even if so, it's okay. Daddy doesn't always have to win everything. She nodded to that, and that was that. And I didn't think anything more about it. But soon enough, though, we were upstairs in her room playing something like Barbie dolls or play-acting scenes from the first Frozen movie, which is something we did all the time back then. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Ada said to me, Daddy, maybe next time you try to win the golf game. Daddy, maybe next time you try to win the golf game. Now, there's no way to adequately describe this scene for you to help you fully appreciate the sense of shame that so clearly gave birth to this sentence. But that's what this was, shame. My four-year-old daughter, nearly an hour after I told her that I had lost my golf match, was still so distraught by the thought of her daddy losing And what's more, so incredulous at my simple acceptance of the fact that she was ashamed. Daddy, maybe next time you try to win the golf game, she said. Or as the evangelist Matthew might put it, she pulled me aside and she began to rebuke me, saying, God forbid that, Daddy. This must never happen to you. Our shame at losing runs deep, you know. Our shame at not being the winners. 
Our shame at not being the most powerful, at not being in charge, and at not being recognized as the ones in control. I want to be like unto the Most High, said Satan, as did the first human being soon thereafter, as have all of us in some shape or fashion ever since. It is literally the foundational story of the Bible. How humankind, crippled by our own desire for power and for glory and for dominance and for control, has time and again usurped the role of God so as to claim these things for ourselves. The Bible, cover to cover, is the story of this very power-grabbing tendency in humanity and of how this man Jesus, this man whom Peter rebuked for his humility, of how this man offers us a way out of this power-grabbing story and into an altogether different and better story. A story that chooses gentleness over hostility. A story that chooses peacefulness over conquest. A story that chooses humility over power. A story that chooses righteousness over being in control. This is what Matthew chapter 5, our gospel lesson, is all about, you know. In this famous passage, Jesus climbs a mountain and delivers the most famous sermon the world has ever known. In it, challenging the age-old way of being human with all of its power-grabbing and all of its questing for status and self-sufficiency by offering instead a new way. And by telling those listening to him that his way is indeed a counterintuitive way, but by assuring them that while this way may seem like a way of weakness and of folly, it is in fact the foundational way of being human, the way originally designed by God. Thus the Apostle Paul, expounding on this sermon some 30 years later, would remind the Corinthian church that while Christ's way may look to others as meek or ineffectual, quote, the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Now it is vital that we understand. The reason Paul had to write these words is because while the Corinthians professed to believe this, their actions in the form of their infighting and their faction forming, in the form of their power plays for control over their own church. Paul had to write these words because these Corinthians' lives and actions did not bear out the belief that they professed. In other words, while Jesus had climbed the Mount of Beatitudes to call his disciples to a way of humility and of peace and of sacrifice, these Corinthian disciples were showing disdain for the very way of life he'd called them to. Which leads me then to the tale of another savior of humankind and to that savior's actions on a different mountain. 
This savior is the titan Prometheus, who, according to Greek mythology, climbed Mount Olympus in order to steal fire from the gods to give to humanity. In direct contrast to the Christian story, the story of a savior who climbed a mountain to preach on the virtues of humility and sacrifice and self-control, The story of a Savior who later climbs a different mountain so as to die a merciful and sacrificial death. In contrast to that Savior, Prometheus represents the opposite approach to human living. Prometheus, in Greek mythology, represents human pride and presumption. Prometheus represents human striving for control and self-sufficiency. Prometheus represents the human will to power and the age-old desire to be like unto the Most High. And thus, given this fact, it is therefore unsurprising that Friedrich Nietzsche, the most eloquent and incisive critic of Christianity in the last two centuries, finds a sort of hero and spokesperson in the person of Prometheus. For Christianity, Nietzsche claims, has made those who hunger for power and for control and for might and for status feel ashamed about desiring that which they ought naturally to desire. These are good things, Nietzsche said. Therefore, follow the way of Prometheus, he enjoins us. Become an ubermensch, a superman. Don't follow the way of Christ and become a docile sheep. Steal fire from the heavens, he enjoins us. That is, take power into your own hands. Don't cow to Christ and say that the humble shall inherit the earth. Give your allegiance to a Savior who climbs a high mountain and says, I will give you all of this, Nietzsche says. Not a savior who climbs a high mountain and says, I must undergo great suffering and be killed. The choice between these, Nietzsche says, is stark and it is urgent. So choose you this day, he in effect says, which mountain you will climb, Mount Olympus or the Mount of Beatitudes? Choose you this day, he in effect says, whom you will serve, Prometheus or Jesus Christ. You know, it is harrowing to read the Bible and realize just how entrenched is the human tendency to answer these questions by saying Jesus and the Mount of Beatitudes but by then making evident through our actions and our lives that our real answers are Prometheus and the Mount Olympus. Look no further than Peter. He who professed a stronger allegiance to Jesus than any of the disciples. See him now as he literally rebukes Jesus for appearing weak in this passage from Matthew 16. Fight for it, Peter effectively says to Jesus as he pulls him aside. 
This can all be yours. Claim it. To which Jesus, hearing echoes of Satan in the wilderness, rebukes Peter, tells him to get behind him, and then goes on to say that anyone ashamed of him and of his way need not consider themselves his disciple. For those who would be my followers, he explains, must take up their crosses too. Which leads me now to a word on Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation. In 1518, Luther stood before a convention called the Heidelberg Disputation. And there he outlined his grievances with a power-hungry church. And in that discourse, Luther famously contrasted what he called a theology of the cross over against that which he called a theology of glory. And a theology of glory, he explained, is all about winning. It's all about power and strength and status and comfort and might. On the other hand, he explained, a theology of the cross is all about humility, all about peacefulness and righteousness and sacrifice and self-control. And so we would be Christ followers, Luther says, must decide between these theologies, between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross, between a theology of winning and of might or a theology of humility and of self-control, between a theology that underwrites naked power following Prometheus up Mount Olympus to steal fire from heaven, or a theology that underwrites humility, following Jesus up the Mount of Beatitudes to sacrifice power for human salvation. Choose you this day, Luther, like Nietzsche was effectively saying at the Heidelberg Disputation, choose you this day a theology of the cross, or a theology of glory. And then he concluded with this, and I quote, The theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. The theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. Dear family, as theologians of the cross... We are called this day to call a thing what it is. Right now, there are millions across our land following a theology of glory. Right now, there are millions across our land calling evil good and good evil. Right now, there are millions across our land using the name of Jesus to underwrite the age-old desire for power and for dominance and for winning at all costs. These are people who are quite literally waving Jesus banners while promoting violence. These are people who are quite literally kneeling for public prayers that end in Jesus' name 
only to turn around and scream expletives into bullhorns describing the havoc that they are about to wreak. These are people like those who years ago in Charlottesville held up signs of hate that cited Bible verses. These are people like those who throughout history have called on the name of Jesus Christ to justify murder and exploitation and even genocide. Dear family, as theologians of the cross, we are responsible this day for calling this what it is, for calling it evil, for calling it utterly out of keeping with the Christian faith, and for calling it altogether anathema to the way of Jesus Christ. It is an age-old temptation to want the kingdom and the power and the glory for ourselves, just as Peter. Just as it is an age-old reaction to feel shame when we feel we are somehow losing the kingdom and the power and the glory for ourselves. Just ask my daughter Ada. But Jesus makes quite clear time and again what the Christian response to these things ought necessarily to be. He doesn't equivocate about it and he doesn't mince words. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, he says. And then he goes on to say, those who would follow me must take up their crosses too. But those who are ashamed of me and of my way, in that same way will I be ashamed of them. The point of this sermon. For those who feel it natural and defensible and justifiable to pursue power in the way we saw demonstrated last week and being called for again even now, And for those who sympathize with a platform of winning at all costs and who feel shame at the thought of losing power or status or even an election. And for those who shudder at the thought of any sort of weakness and who think that the role of God in human affairs is to ensure that such weakness is never realized. For all such people, there is indeed a God in whose name to pray. Only it's not God as revealed in Jesus Christ. It is instead the Greek titan Prometheus. You see, when we conflate power with Christ and winning with Christianity, we have traded a theology of the cross for a theology of glory. And in so doing, we have begun to climb the wrong mountain in the name of Jesus. And so when we find ourselves waving Jesus banners in support of violence, and when we find ourselves praying for a successful sedition in Jesus' name, and when we begin to claim Bible verses to underwrite our own feelings of superiority, or even when we find ourselves sympathizing with such things because we too feel angered or ashamed about losing status or power. Well, dear family, in such times, 
we find ourselves climbing not the Mount of Beatitudes, but instead we find ourselves climbing Mount Olympus. And so in the end, as followers of Christ, we have a very real and very urgent choice before us. And it is the choice between the way of Prometheus or the way of Jesus. It is the choice between whether to climb Mount Olympus or whether to climb the Mount of the Beatitudes. It is the choice between whether to call evil good or to call a thing what it really is. What we are seeing all around us right now is a theology of glory and it has nothing to do with the way of Christ. So let us, dear family, name this. Let us call it what it is. Let us rebuke it and let us tell it to get thee behind us. And then let us gather our crosses and continue our climb up the Mount of Beatitudes. Remembering that blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And that blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Amen.